Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode, another story, another story of mindfulness and how mindfulness comes in many, many different forms. And today's guest, David Albin. David Albin spent close to 20 years on the road with a fellow you may have heard about named Tony Robbins and the Firewalk experience. And he traveled the world and he became the captain of the fire team for Tony Robbins. And those, he said, had they did them all over the world. And the largest firewalking that's been recorded was done in London. Over 12,000 people went through the firewalk experience in the eastern part of London. And uh, Dave Albin was the chief of the captains of the fire teams and shares his own personal story. The personal story of alcoholism, the purpose story of drugs, the story of the moment that he had the gun to his head and was about to pull the trigger. Uh, those kind of moments which create a powerful transformation in his life. And then he discovered mindfulness. He discovered meditation. He discovered uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he used the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous and transformed his life and, and then got connected with Tony Robbins and then spent those 20 years on the road with Tony Robbins. And the firewalk experience that he talks about is transformational. I have done the Tony Robbins firewalks and uh, he what he's, he's he has a much more vivid experience having seen it thousands of times but i came out of the experience of the firewalk with the thought where else in my life do i say i can't do something which limits me and when you walk on the fire, you realize that you always thought that you could never do something like that. And you do it. And it's it's a it's a liberation of consciousness. It's a freedom of space and power. And to have the captain of the fire teams with us today talking about the transformations that occur in people's lives through the firewalking and his new project of taking the firewalking transformational experience and, 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 and provide it to other people who need it, who have tremendous agitation and things going on in their life, which create instability. He's creating the first firewalking experience. He's calling it do no harm. And it's going to be held in Modesto 
in April of 2024. The audience that he would like to have there, uh, he wants to have the Firewalk experience available to single mothers because they do a lot of stuff. And boy, if we could give them a boost, it'd be great. And why? Because he was raised by a single mother. Veterans. He's a veteran. He's talking about the suicide rates of veterans are high. We can reduce that down with a breakthrough of consciousness, which you can get during a firewalk experience. Talked about first responders, those people who deal with that traumatic accidents on the road kind of stuff, which is very vivid. They need support and calming their uh, agitation that they constantly experience. And then we have people who have experienced bullying and they get to go to the firewalking experience. So that's just another project that he talks about towards the end of the firewalk experience to talk towards the end of our podcast today. Wow. And energy, enthusiasm. Dave is certainly a, a, a wonderful guest. And I know that you'll be carried away by his power and his enthusiasm and his desire to give back to the to the community and support the well-being of all of, of all people so thank you very much and thank you very much dave for being here today and please welcome to the mindful you audience dave albin Welcome, David Albin, to the Mindful You podcast. Boy, oh boy, you are a a seasoned warrior on the transformation journey. Uh, you were describing to me earlier uh, your uh, opportunities to interact with champions of mindfulness, champions of people who are committed to service. And anybody that has spent as long as you have in the area of service to others deserves a deserves a, a tear and an acknowledgement for the work that that, that you have done. So, what I'd like to do is uh, have you take to take our audience on a journey of David in the in, in the beginning and the rev level and evolution of consciousness. Because we're talking about an evolution of consciousness, which then materializes in the in the physical plane as different events. But it's a level of consciousness and, and ideas that create the events that have gotten you to a, a place in which you are uh, committed to service of others. So take the microphone, Dave, and, and have some fun with it. Well, first of all, Alan, thank you for having me. And it's a, it's an honor. And yeah, that was a pretty heavy conversation that we had prior to coming into this. So... Uh, I'm a, I'm pretty emotional myself. And, um, you know, it really, it all started for me, Alan, a couple of months um, before I was born. My biological father um, had, we don't know what happened. He hurt himself. He hit his head. And uh, to save his life, they put a plate in his head. And he complained to my mom all the time of how painful it was. And um, sure enough, one day he said, I'm going to the grocery store. And uh, we never saw or heard from him again. So when I was born two months later, I was born to a single mom. So she already had two boys. She had me. That's three. She had a cousin that was living with us as well. And her mother, my grandmother. And we were all living in a one bedroom apartment in Hollywood, California. Mom was working up the street at the Roosevelt Hotel, very famous hotel in Hollywood. And mom came out of the uh, what I would call one of the most kick butt generations that's ever walked this planet. 
mom and, and her and her uh, siblings, uh, you know, were born during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they thrived and and survived uh, World War Two. Right. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that when the men were in Europe fighting the Nazis, the rest of them were in uh, the Pacific fighting the Japanese. Well, guess who was home taking care of everything? The women. And so this idea that women need to be qualified to do this or qualified to do that is a crock. Mm-hmm. Because without the right, because without the women back in those days, this this world would be different. Hitler might have Hitler might have won. Because women were doing everything. They built tanks. They built Jeeps. My mother, my biological mother was known as Rosie the Riveter. And what that was a, an affectionate name for a woman who was out on a B-29 airplane, you know, driving rivets into the into the wing, building them. So mom knew hard work. They knew depravity. They knew that when something broke, you fixed it. Mm-hmm. And, and so they knew how to do everything. And so, she, you know, she tried really hard, Alan. She worked her butt off, but it wasn't enough. She was a server. And so um, when, when I was five, she went to her older sister, <clears throat> Pat, and said, Pat, will you and your husband, Bob, adopt David? I can't feed him anymore. And so they did. And so now my aunt and uncle, who I affectionately have always referred to him as my mom and dad, adopted me and they moved me from Hollywood to Long Beach, California. Bob was a highly decorated military officer. He was career military. And so we had a nice lifestyle. We lived in a nice house. We always had food. We were able to travel. We went camping all the time. And they treated me just like their own. No question about it. In fact, they might have treated me even a little better. And then on on the first day of summer, 1964, the very first day, um, Ma, I'm in the TV room. I'm up early. It's the first day of summer. Like all kids, you're excited. You're out of your mind. You don't want to sleep. You want to get outside <laughs> with all your buddies, right? So she said, David, come in the kitchen. We need to speak with you. So what I think it's going to happen is they're going to tell me where we're going to go camping because that's what we did a lot. We're in Southern California, right? We, we've been to Yosemite and Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead and Lake Havasu and Lake, I mean, all up and down the Southern California and Northern California coast. And so I sit down and my mom looks at me and she kind of puts her hand on my hand and she's got tears in her eyes. And she says, David, we need to tell you something. And she went on to tell me that she said, we're not your parents. What? Well, of course you're my parents. What do you, what, that's like taking somebody outside and there's the blue sky and you go, well, the sky's not blue. Well, it looks pretty blue to me. Right. Uh, and, and they look like my parents to me. Yep. And so that was a life-changing moment for me. Um, in fact, she went on. She said, by the way, your Aunt Dean? Yeah. Well, she's actually your biological mother. And I remember thinking, I don't even like her. <laughs> what, I, what I what I meant by that was every time she was around me, she wanted to be around me, right? She wanted to yeah. touch me and hold me and kiss me and sit next to me. Well, duh, I'm her son. But you know what? I, I didn't know that. Right. I just thought she was my weird aunt that was, you know, very affectionate. Now, she, by the way, I want to be really clear about something. She never, ever touched me inappropriately. It was always, you know, with love and kindness and, and that kind of thing. Good. And so shortly after they told me, they both started drinking. And, it, and, and they swore off alcohol at five years old when they adopted. Me. So for six years, they didn't drink at all. 
And then all of a sudden, boom, they both started. Now, there was a lot going on in the world back then. Kennedy had just been assassinated in November of 63. This is the summer of 64. My dad's military. He's an officer. He's working in the Pentagon, going back and forth from Southern Cal to, to D.C. The Bay of Pigs was going on. The missiles were in Cuba. We were on the brink of nuclear war. And my dad, you know, again, I, I don't know if it was that. It was a combination of Kennedy being assassinated. If it was him telling me that they weren't my parents, I don't know. All I know is they both started drinking. And Alvin, it got real ugly real fast. Pat, my mom, right, she was a happy drunk, if you will. She never got violent, but Bob did. Bob turned into a not a nice guy when he was drinking. He was a wonderful human when he was sober. But man, when he was drinking, get back away from this guy. <laughs> and that might have been because of, you know, the PTSD and stuff during the war, World War II. I don't know. We didn't know what PTSD was back then. They, they didn't right. even treat them back then, right? That's right. So anyway, they went to the grocery store one day, both of them. And uh, they did that a lot, right? You'd go together, right? You didn't, you leave your kids home. <laughs> it's like, no big deal. This is the 60s, for God's sakes, right? Uh, all you did was call the neighbor across the street and say, hey, Joanne, Bob and I are going to the grocery store. David's going to be home alone. Um, hey, if he needs anything, can he come knock on the door? Well, yeah, sure. Tell him to come over now. Well, I'll feed him a fried bologna sandwich, man. <laughs> if you've never had a fried bologna sandwich of the 60s, man. So um, when they left, I, I, I knew where the booze was. They were hiding it in plain sight. Now I wanted to know what this stuff was. And so curiosity, I went over and grabbed it out of the out of the uh, cabinet. I set it on. I remember looking at it, this big giant half gallon of brandy. And I took a coffee cup and I, I filled it about halfway and I downed it, Alan. And you know what? I never had a chance ever. I was an alcoholic right on the spot. Really? I started I started thinking alcoholically, acting alcoholically. Oh, yeah, I was done. Stick a fork in me. Now, alcoholism is running through my family anyway, so it's no secret. It, you know, it's not like I was immune from it. I Boom, I, I was done. And I'm, you know, I'm 11 years old, for God's sake. Well, it just got, that got worse. Because, you know, the drinking in the house, I didn't want to be anywhere around it, right? So I was always outside, down the street. I could get on my bicycle and ride miles away. I could ride all the way to the beach, and nobody would know the difference. And, um, and so as I got through school, as I'm getting through school, that's not working. Uh, I'm not doing well. Wow. Uh, by the time I was a junior, by the time I was a junior in high school, they pulled me into the principal's office and said, "Alvin, you're out. We're <laughs> done with you. You're a threat to our school." Woo. Now, the good news with that was I was good with it. I'm like, "Good. I don't want to go to school. You're not teaching me anything that's going to make me a living anyway." Or at least that was my belief at the moment. I was already an entrepreneur. And I was an entrepreneur because when I was young, you know, back when I was 11, the other flip side was my mom grew flowers in the backyard. She had this giant planter. It was L-shaped. And she had thousands of flowers growing back there. Now, understand, mom, she was the oldest of the kids, right? She could do everything during the Depression. She sold clothes. She made clothes. She, she farmed. She, she did it all, right? So she knew how to grow flowers. And so she went out and she'd cut those bad boys. And she'd take it and she'd cut it at an angle. She wouldn't cut it at the bottom. She cut it at an angle to open up more surface area so more water would get into the, into the flower, right? Ah. And then she would arrange them. She had a beautiful eye for color. And she would arrange them. And she put a rubber band around them. And then she put them in a bucket. And she put water in the bucket. And then here's what she did. Here was the magic. The genius was she put a little bit of 7-Up in that water. 
And something about that 7-Up would get up into those flowers and they would outlast every florist in town. <laughs> and so I'm on the street corner selling flowers that would last two weeks easily. And so there I am. I'm learning to negotiate with, you know, with people. Um, I got a paper route shortly thereafter. Yep. That's a full-blown full blown job. You are, you are an entrepreneur. You're running your own business seven days a week. You got to go get your papers after school. You got to get up early in the morning on Saturday and Sunday because the people want that early morning paper. You got to fold them, deliver them, collect the money, turn it into your den mother, all of that. It's you're a full blown entrepreneur. And I grew up across the street from a golf course. Well, this is, you know, and guess what I learned about golfers? <laughs> they suck, <laughs> right? Those guys would hit the balls over the fence and I'd go take my stingray bicycle. I'd ride around the perimeter and guess what I'd find? Golf, golf balls. balls everywhere so i take them home clean them yep. i went back to the golf course and they'd throw the boxes they came in in the trash well i'd take them and then i'd come back and i'd arrange them i'd put you know titleist maxfly dunlop wilson's and i'd go back into the parking lot of the golf course and sell them back to the golfers so my belief system when i got kicked out of high school there's money out there go get it yep it's out there man it's everywhere and so I got a job in, in, the, in the biggest grocery store in the state of California. And uh, I got into an apprentice program. I became a retail clerks, which was a subsidiary of the Teamsters Union. And the next thing I know, after a year, I'm making eight bucks an hour in 1972. So that's like 50 bucks an hour now, right? I went out and bought a new, Must a new Mach 1 Mustang. I got my own apartment in Belmont Shore, California. Uh, and it's a good thing I was making money because I had a hell of a drug habit. I was taking amphetamines because I was working night crew. I was doing coke. I was doing heroin. I was drinking alcohol. I mean, I was a, I was a train wreck, man. I was a plane crash and a five-car collision all rolled into one. And, but I went, and you know, and you, who do you hang out with when you've got that kind of a lifestyle? You're hanging out with drug addicts. You're hanging out with, with drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes. And I mean, it's, you know, gangs and the whole nine yards. <clears throat> well, to further this three and three marriages later, um, I'm, um, I woke up on June 8th of 1988 and I got up that morning and I said, this is it. I'm done. I'm out. I can't do the pain anymore. Probably similar to my dad. And I'm like, so I'm I'm going to end my life. I'm going to load my pistol. I'm going to put a bullet in my head and the pain's going away and I'll be done with it. Yep. Well, I'm married to a woman who's got three kids and they're my stepkids. They're living upstairs. I'm living in the basement because they wanted nothing to do with me at that point. And so as I'm contemplating and getting ready to put a bullet in my head, it dawns on me. When you pull that trigger, yeah, your troubles go away, right? But those three kids, you're killing them. You're going to ruin their life. It's not fair. You can't do that to them. Figure out another plan, pal. And this is the conversation I'm having with myself. And so now I'm like, no, you can't do that. You can't ruin their life. And so the next thought I had was, okay, we well, got to do something. And the next thought I had, Ellen, is call Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you know what's weird about that? Bizarre, if you will. I don't know who AA is. I don't know anybody in AA. I've never been to AA. And yet there's the thought, call Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did. And I got a wonderful human being on the phone to this day. I've affectionately nicknamed her Madge. And uh, the reason I nicknamed her Madge in a playful, loving way is because she talked like this. 
she probably smoked two packs of Paul Ball non-filters a day. And man, she was a badass. She was a gatekeeper, man. That was her job. Her job is to interview you. And if she thinks it's warranted, she will call somebody in AA to come get you. And she did. She called Lauren. And Lauren came and picked me up. And he took me to my first AA meeting. And uh, while I was there, they took a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the fourth edition, I believe it was, and they signed it. It was all men's group, by the way. And they, they, they wrote on the inside cover, before you take that first drink, call one of us. They put their first name and their telephone number. They sent me home with that. And so my AA career started. Next day, you know, I got two days, and then I got a week, and then I got a month. And when I that first day, they also gave me one of these, a chip. And then in 30 days, they gave me another one. Well, I got a sponsor. And here's what my sponsor told me. He said, tell you what, put this in your, put this on your tongue. <laughs> and if it and if it dissolves, it's made of metal. <laughs> right. He said, when it when it dissolves, you can have a drink. Which meant you're never going to drink again, pal. Right. So, you know, I got two months, they gave me another chip, and then three months, six months, nine months, one year. And then, of course, this last June 8th, 19. 19- 2023, I picked up one for 35 years. Um, in fact, I was on a podcast here. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and I, it's hard to, it's hard, it's, it's hard for me there because it's like, look, all I did is stop trying to kill myself. That's all I really did. Um, I was on a podcast here recently. She was a clinical psychologist and she said, Do you have any, were you addicted to heroin and cocaine too? Yeah. You were doing all hard drugs. Yeah. And alcohol. Yeah. She goes, Do you have any idea what the odds are of you making it out? And I'm like, no, and I don't want to know. All I know is I'm here. And that's that's all I care about. And because of that, I I came to I came to an awakening that I had a divine purpose. And it and it and it was to do the greater good and serve other human beings. Because in AA, in the preamble, and you know, you got the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, but in the middle there, Alan, they got the preamble, and the preamble says. When anyone anywhere reaches out, I want the hand of A to be there. And for that, I'm responsible. Well, I took that to heart. That's what they showed me. So talk about duplication, right? There I was. Well, at the same time I'm getting sober, I'm up late one night, 1988, 3 o'clock in the morning. Who guessed? Guess who's the only person on television at 3 o'clock in the morning in 1988? <laughs> You're laughing because you know, right? And, and it's, there he is, you know, Mr. Enthusiasm, you know, a young Tony Robbins, a vibrant Tony Robbins being promoted by Gunthy Ranker, selling his personal power program, a 30-day program for total success. And so, um, I'm, I, and I did not like him. I'm going to tell you right now, I, I thought he was pompous, like he's all motivated and I'm not motivated. I'm miserable. But he said a couple things that got me. So I kept listening to him. The first thing he said was, we'll do more to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. And I went, whoa. Let's uh, let's share that with the audience a little slower when we we get them golden nuggets, uh, Dave. Uh, Let's uh, let's go real slow. Real slow. He He said, we'll do more to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. Well, that resonated with me because I was using alcohol and drugs for those two purposes. I was either trying to avoid pain with the drugs and alcohol, or I was trying to chase some type of pleasure. 
So that resonated with me, right? But I still don't like the guy. <laughs> but then here's what got me. He said the driving force in our lives as human beings, how we make decisions are we're, in, we're, either, we're either influenced by inspiration or desperation. And when he said that, I went, oh, my gosh. Man, am I desperate. Maybe I should listen to this dude. And I did. So I bought his program. And they sent it to me. came in a big box. And the program came on these little white things called cassette tapes. Cassettes. Right? <laughs> cassette? What's that? What are you Go- talking about? They're, well, they're in the Smithsonian. You'll see them. They're right next to eight-track tapes and reel-to-reel. And 35-millimeter slides. You can add yeah, those to the file, too. Look, yeah, exactly. So well, I plugged them in, and I did what the man taught me to do, Alan, and you it bet. worked. You bet. Right? So that's all. that all went down in 88. Well, one of my buddies, I started making changes. I started working out. I started losing weight. I started, I started a chauffeur business back in those days. Started doing really well. Um, you know, my attitude's good. I'm changing. I'm, I'm enthusiastic. I'm up. I'm I'm grateful. You know, yep. I, I'm grateful for life and my the, the second chance. And so AA and the personal development industry collided in my life at the same time early on. And that was that rarely happens to people in AA. And so um, that was really it, man. So so my buddy in AA one day is talking to me. He's got about two years on me. He's like, dude, what's going on with you? Why are you so motivated? You're all encouraging. And I hear you in the meetings and you're very uplifting. He goes, man, what's going on? And I said, well, I've been listening to this guy named Tony Robbins. And he goes, I know who Tony Robbins is. I bought his book, but I never read it. <laughs> I said, well, how often does that show up in your life? Right? We want to make a change. We buy a book or buy a program and then we don't do it. Yeah, I knew who you are. You're out there listening, right? We do it. Well, anyway, I said, look, I bought his program. I'll loan it to you if you promise me to go through it. He said, I promise. So I gave it to him. And he did. He went through it. Seven years later, this is all going on in 1988, 1989. Two, ni- uh, 1995, my phone rings. It's Dan. He goes, dude, hey, man, did you know that Tony Robbins is coming to town? And I'm like, no, man. I had no clue. He goes, dude, come on. You got me into this. You got to go with me. Come on, let's go. Yep. And I said, well, what's the date? I, so he, I said, yeah, I'll go. He said, great. Listen, I'm going to call you back. Let me go make the arrangements. Let me call you back. Calls me back an hour later. He goes, done. Here's what they told us to do. Number one, drink a lot of water. Stay hydrated throughout the event. Number two, bring snacks. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this one. They said, bring snacks. You're going to spend a lot of time in the room. <laughs> what an understatement that is. Al is laughing because he knows, man. And so, um, and then he said, be ready to play full out and bring a good attitude. And I said, well, how much was the ticket, Dan? He said, $695. What? $695 in 1995? Right. What, what, what's that worth today? Yeah. $1.3 million? I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. Buy Bitcoin, for God's sake. Hey, absolutely. Bitcoin's up. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just as he's getting ready to get off the phone, he goes, oh, by the way, I left out. I almost left out the most important part. He goes, we're going to be doing a fire walk. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, 
Oh, hell no. No, 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 no. Now, I'm not saying anything, but my brain's going, no. Fire walk together? No. I, you know what's funny? I don't know what a fire walk is. I don't know what that meant. I have no references for that. I have no idea what he just told me, but I said no. But I'm not saying anything to Dan. I'm making these decisions quietly. Right. And I'm like going along with it. I'm like, you know, I'm being subservient. I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, fire walk. Yeah, sounds good, Dan. Okay, man. See you then. Well, the big day comes and we get there and you know this. Uh, Tony took the stage at two o'clock in the afternoon. Next thing I know, it's after midnight. <laughs> right. You've been in, I've been in a room. We've all been in a room. There's 3,500 of us, by the way, at this event. And uh, you, I've been in a room with Tony for 10 hours. Uh, you know, remember the part, bring snacks. Yeah, if you don't, you'll starve to death. Uh, <laughs> and the next thing you know, right? and I'm not doing it. I've made a decision. This is a hard no for me. I am not going to do this firewalk. And all of a sudden, Tony goes, take your shoes off. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I see where you're going with that, pal. <laughs> no, uh-uh. I ain't falling for that. Well, here's the dilemma. I'm in a room with 3,500 people. Guess what they're doing? They're taking their damn shoes off. That's right. I remember going, I'm thinking, no, people, don't go towards the light. You know, it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So now my dilemma is, what am I going to do? What am That's I right. not going to take my shoes off and walk out there into this parking lot with 3,500 people and wear my shoes? They're all going to be pointing at me. They're going to know I'm a coward. Nah, we can't have that. So I'm like, calm down, just chill. Take your shoes off, and when you get out there, just go hide in the back. No one is going to know, period. Right. Of course. Right? So there's my – now, it gets worse, as you know, when he gets everybody going out there, what's he get everybody to start doing? Clapping and chanting, right? So he's, they're walking out there going, yes, yes, yes. And I'm walking out there going, nope, uh-uh, don't think so. Not tonight, boys and girls. And uh, But it gets worse. You know this, too. Um, you get out there, he's got African drummers. Oh, yeah. Dun, 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 oh, it dun. feels good in the body. Oh, boom, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> but, you know, what a dog and pony show, right? <laughs> and then you get out there, of course, and he's got this giant fire built over here in the corner, right? And it's huge. Um, it's 35 feet wide. It's 70 feet long. It's been burning all day. And it renders after 10 hours. And so they just keep throwing wood on it all day. And at the end of the night, this big giant pile of coals. It's a blue, woohoo, blue flame. It's gorgeous, right? Uh -huh. So how do you how do you firewalk 3,500 people? Well, what you do is you take wheelbarrows over to that big pile of coals. You load the coals in a wheelbarrow. You bring a wheelbarrow in and you run two lanes of sod grass on each side. And that lane's, uh, you know, three feet wide, 18 feet long. And then you just take a flathead shovel and you sprinkle those coals on top of that grass. And that's what you walk on. Well, I'm having none of it. Where am I? I'm in the back. I'm hiding. Well, here's what Tony Robbins knows. He did his research. He didn't bring the firewalk to his events because he thought he was going to hurt people. Right? He knows. He did his research. Firewalking. Uh, is 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 literally one of the most life-changing experiences any human will ever go through, period. Firewalk has been around for a thousand years. It's not new. It may be new to the West, but it's not new to the rest of the world. Just go ask the Fahitians or the people of India. Oh, my gosh, they've been doing it. It's incredible, the firewalks they do in India.
uh, the Polynesians, the Hawaiians, the people of, of Spain and Portugal and the Indo-Europeans, the Native American Indians. It's been around for a thousand years, used as a rite of passage, a graduation. So Tony knows that this is, you know, he wants to get you across that fire. And the reason is because he knows the paradigm shift is there. He knows it's going to be one of the most life-changing experiences you'll ever endure. And so he wants to make sure you get through that experience. So what's he do? He knows there's people like me. He knows where we are. He knows we're hiding in the back. He's not, he's, he's very experienced at this. So what's he do? He trains people to come find you. So here I'm thinking, I got it all figured out, hiding in the back. Next thing you know, here comes this guy. He gets <laughs> now you know what's coming, right? I'm back there, and all of a sudden, he makes eye contact with me. Right? And, and Tony trains him. Once you make eye contact, don't take your eyes off. And so I'm out there, and he makes eye contact with me, and he gets to you know, I don't know, 20 feet from me. And he kind of looks at me really funny, like a dog that hears a strange sound, right? Twisting his head. And he's looking at me, he goes, hey, man, are you okay? And when we're not okay, what do we say? What do we do? I'm fine. We're live. We're fine. Yeah, all good here. Move along. Nothing to see here, Spow. And he says, so, hey, man, are you going to walk tonight? And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, like, <laughs> you idiot. Why do you think I'm hiding in the back, you fool? And he goes, hey, man, that's cool. No problem. He said, we don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. And I went, oh, okay. Well, this guy's going to get me out of here. Eh, not so much. And you know what's interesting about this man, Alan, is I don't know who it is to this day. This one guy that I don't know asked me one question and completely changed my life. That's, those kinds of things happen in our lives all the time, but we don't recognize it in the moment. And so here's this perfect stranger, and the question he asked me was, wouldn't you at least like to watch? And I thought, well, sure, I'll watch. That'll be fun. Let's go watch these people burn their feet off. Yeah, let's do that. And he said, well, listen, man, you can't see anything from where you are. He's right, and he's telling the truth. I'm 100 yards away. I got 3,500 people standing for me. I can't see anything. I can hear it. I can see the big fire over here. I can hear the drums. I can feel the drums. I can hear the chanting and the clapping. People are already firewalking, and they're in this celebration in, and they're jumping up like crazy, screaming with exhilaration. That's all happening, but I can't see anything. And he said, well, just get in line, and eventually you'll get up there. You'll be able to see it. <laughs> he got me, right? He got me in line. That's all that he needed to do. And he was congruent because I, I couldn't see anything, and I wouldn't have been able to see anything had I not gotten in line. So I'm in line, I'm kind of trudging along. And, you know, again, it's, 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 it's a dog and pony show unlike anything you've ever seen, felt, or experienced. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me, and he whispers in my ear. <clears throat> and he says, he knows when you're ready. When he says, go, you go. And pew, this guy just disappeared into the night. And I'm like, what was that? Who was that? What does that mean? He knows when you're ready. And so I'm just walking along and I'm walking along and all of a sudden I get to a point. I still can't see in front of me. I got a thousand people in front of me, but I can see at an angle. And Alan, as you know, they're doing it. Every race, every creed, every color, every, they're firewalking. They are walking on hot coals and I'm mesmerized. <clears throat> I can't take my eyes off it. You know, it's like a, it's like a car accident, right? You go, oh, I'm not supposed to look at it. But what do we do? We stare at it. Sure. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. I can't take my eyes off it. 
And and I'm and again, I'm just in a trance and I'm walking along and boom. Next thing I know, guess where I am? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm at the front of the line. And now I'm looking down at that fire lane. Right. It's three feet wide. It's 18 feet long. The coals have been sprinkled on top. They're glowing. bright, glowing coals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, geez. And the wheelbarrow's right there. So I can feel the heat coming off. So this is real. Yep. And I'm staring into the abyss. Yep. And my heart is pounding so hard, I know it's going to jump out of my chest any moment. Yep. Well, there's a trainer standing right there. Yep. And all of a sudden, the trainer goes, eyes up. And, oh, I bring my eyes up. Like, you know, he startled me, right? My eyes are up. Well, duh. I'm in a room for 10 hours with Tony Robbins. I guess what he teaches you to do, as you well know. Keep your eyes up. Don't stare at what you fear. Interesting metaphor. Keep your eyes up. Look to the celebration end, because that's where the reward is. And so, because basically fear is nothing more than exhilaration without the breath. Let me say that again. Fear, in most cases, is nothing more than exhilaration without the breath, because it's like going on a roller coaster. You get scared. What do you do? (gasps) You hold your breath. You're not breathing, just like we did when we started your podcast. We took a nice, big, deep cleansing breath. Get oxygen into your body. Get, Get your mind moving. And so... The trainer goes, squeeze your fist and say yes. And I went, yes. And he went, stronger. And I went, yes. Well, he could tell. He's been doing this. He knew I wasn't in a peak state. He knew I was leaving a lot on the table. So what did he do? He got in my face and screamed at me, stronger. Screamed at me. Well, that's fight or flight. So I threw my hands in the air and I screamed, yes, as loud as I could. And he goes, go, go, go. I took off. Right? Remember the guy? He knows when you're ready. When he says go, you go. I went. Well, here's the first thing I learned about fire walking, and I'll bet you learned something similar. And that is when you take that first step, oh, you'll take the second, third, fourth, and fifth. You're not going to stop on that fire lane. Ain't going to happen. Well, as you might also know, they put two guys at the end, two people at the end, and they lock arms to stop you, and they catch you. Right? And it's like, stop, wipe your feet. Thank you for listening, and please catch us on the next great episode of the Mindful You podcast, and please share us with your friends and fellow travelers on the path.